Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the title of this podcast for today. It's wonderful to have you tune in. This is the Fishing for Men with Mac show. And uh, today I will be dealing with this topic of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we're going to look at a section of text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This podcast is usually dedicated to uh, evangelism and to dealing with worldviews. And it's not really a, a sermon-focused preaching type of podcast. But I thought for this week, in actual fact, I'd like to continue it into the future, is to uh, send out a podcast uh, weekly that would be a spiritual lesson for Christians. And it should be interesting for those who are seeking still um Christ who's seeking the purpose of life, who's seeking and God, it will still be valuable to you as well. So for this week, we're going to deal with this topic of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to explain that as we go on. I think it will be valuable to you if you like history and if you maybe have a question about how Christianity could be relevant in a godless society, then I think this will be a good podcast for you at the end of this podcast you should have some idea as to why jesus christ and him crucified is practically emotionally and spiritually the only answer to life now let me start off by telling you a little bit about a town by the name of corinth now corinth is a is a town that um, was situated on what they call an isthmus, which is a narrow piece of land between two seas. Now at the top, um, if you go into a map, if you want to go into your phone, you're welcome to look at it. But if you go type in Corinth, it's going to take you to a, a map. And in the north, you're going to see the Gulf of Corinth. And in the south, you're going to see the Saronic Gulf. And when ships wanted to get into the Saronic Gulf from the Gulf of Corinth, they had to sail a long distance away around a whole peninsula, a whole piece of land. And so what they decided to do at this narrow piece of land, which is called the Isthmus, is they built a type of road out of limestone, which would drag ships across the land. Now, I can't remember what the distance is. I think it's something like eight miles. I, I might be incorrect, but that's about the distance. And so instead of having to travel by ship all around this massive piece of land from the one sea to the other sea, they said, hey, but here's a small piece of land. Why don't we just build a road? And then so ships would come, they would dock in, we would lift up the ships, we would unpack the ships, and then we'd put them on, on types of chariots with wheels, and we'll drag the ships across the land to the other side, and we, we will drop them into the Saronic Gulf. And so because of this activity, because that specific place was then made this roadway, which is called the Diolcos, and by the way, you can go and you can uh, Google that, the Diorcos, and there's some nice photos of that. You can see parts of this road still in existence today, uh, where they drag these ships across uh, land. Um, obviously, they developed a city, a town, and the name of that town is Corinth. Now, today, there is a channel. They, they've made a waterway from the one gulf to the other gulf, which is pretty cool. And you can look at the photos of that as well. Now, the reason why that town developed is because obviously these ships had sailors. 
And these sailors, they also wanted to get off the ship, stretch a bit of legs, you know, and look for a place to stay. They've, they've maybe been on the ocean for a couple of months. And, uh, you know, they, they'd like to just uh, have some better food and get some uh, social interaction and connect with people. Now, let me ask this question. What do you think a town like that would look like? You had a bunch of men that have been on the sea for a couple of months. What do you think they want to do? Especially if they're godless. Okay, godless sailors. What would they want? Well, many of them were gamblers. I think um, Corinth would obviously become a place or a point in their journey where trading would take place and they will get paid. And so there was the Isthmian Games, which was a big thing. Um, you had uh, people gambling over those games. You also had people from different parts of the world coming together in Corinth. And so you would have different types of ideas. It's a very metropolitan, uh, metropolitan type of, of place. And so you would have different philosophies and you would have different religions. There was a temple in Corinth that was dedicated to um, a god, which included the worshipping of... Uh, that God through temple prostitutes. And so there were prostitutes in this place as well. Because you can imagine, men that have been on the ocean for a while, you know, what do they, what do they want to do? They want to engage in sexual activity. So Corinth was a rough place. Lots of drinking, lost, lots of drunkenness and feasting and, and prostitutes and gambling. I mean, you can take New, the, the worst of New Orleans, uh, the worst of Las Vegas, the worst of Los Angeles, uh, the worst of Portland and the, the worst of New York. And you can take that and degrade it to a primitive baseness of 2000 years ago and you get Corinth. So Corinth was a wild place. Now, if a guy like Paul, the great apostle, would walk in there into that environment, how do you think he would preach? What would he say? How do you address such a godless society? There are places in America. There are places in South Africa. There are places all over the world that, have really, that are really godless. How do you penetrate such a society? Do you think it will work if you just walk in there and say, Hey, guys, um, let me tell you about Jesus. Um, you know, would, would that cut it? Now, Paul, before he goes into this town, Corinth, he, um, he enters Athens that's still in existence today, Athens of Greece. And he is brilliant. I mean, Paul just has a way of connecting with people. He himself said in one of the letters that he had become all things and to all men in order to win some. And so he had an ability to, to, to sort of uh, shape shift his uh, personality and his way of life in order to connect with people. Um, and so he connects with the people in Athens in a very unique way. If you have your Bible and you want to go read up on that, you're welcome to do that. It's Acts chapter 17. You see him enter um, Athens and he starts to preach there in the, I think he starts off in the marketplace and then he goes to the, he's invited to the Arapagus where all the people got together with the latest ideas and he started debating with them about different philosophies, etc. Now, Athens was a more civilized society, so you had more prim and proper people. There was idol worship and emperor worship, etc. Et and so it was pretty easy for Paul to address this Athenian population because he could deal with them intellectually and philosophically. Um, Paul could prepare himself for this type of um, environment. 
But when he left Athens, the next place he would enter was Corinth, this pagan, godless city. And I think this was difficult for him because this city was faced with, uh, was filled with the most base people. And we see that in the church. Now, there's a book in the Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. This was a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians sometime later after he had been with them. So after this visit that he had with them, the first time he visited them, a few years later, he heard about the things that was going on in the church. Now, let me tell you about some of the things that was going on in the church. The one guy had a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, that's probably a stepmother. Um, some of the people, they got drunk when they had Lord's Supper at church. Okay, that's wild. All right, one church guy uh, takes the other one to court. Church people have intercourse with temple prostitutes. Ladies in the church cut their hair and they look like prostitutes. You get the picture. Corinthian society was bad and Paul knew this. And so it was a tough mission for Paul. This is where he had to go into. Now, if you go read Acts 18 verse 6, the... The text says that the people, these people of Corinth, they resisted and blasphemed Paul. And so Paul was, he was fearful of entering the city. And when he did, the people blasphemed him and they, they disrespected him and they resisted him. This was about the only city that we read about where Paul was actually scared. Out of all the places that Paul preached, the only place where um, God decided to appear to him in a dream and encourage him and say, hey man, just hang in there. It was Corinth. You can go read that in Acts 18 verse 9 to 10. So he spent about 18 months in Corinth. And during this time, he baptized the synagogue leader and his family, which is a massive achievement because he was sort of the lead. He was the leader of the, of the Jewish people in that city. And the text says that many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. That's Acts 18 verse 8. So his mission was successful. Now I want to ask this question. Paul is scared of entering the city. It's a godless place. Prostitutes and drunkenness and sailors going around. It's gambling. It's, it's a bad place. Paul went in there. He's scared. But he starts preaching. And a few, a few moments, maybe weeks into his preaching... The text says that many people believed and were baptized to the extent that he eventually establishes a church there. Now my question is, how did he do it? What is his formula? And that brings us to the text, the key text of this podcast for today. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Listen to what Paul says. Now this is uh, some time later, and he writes this letter to them. And in chapter 2, he says to them the following. When I came to you, brothers and sisters... Announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom but on God's power. Now, there are a few things that stand out for me in this text. First of all, let me say this. When a Corinthian looked at Paul, he saw nothing. Nothing. Paul says here that he came, he didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. 
In other words, when you hear Paul speaking, it would be boring. You'd be like, okay, who's this guy? You know? The text says that he came in weakness and fear and trembling. So he was a guy that was timid and scared and, and he didn't talk much. And he didn't use great words and wisdom. And later on, the same people in the second letter tells us that, that they thought that Paul's physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. So when you looked at Paul, when these Christians looked at Paul, well, these pagans, before they were Christians, when they looked at Paul, they saw in Paul nothing. They just saw this guy cannot really talk. He's weak. He's scared. And he doesn't really, you know, come with clever uh, philosophies and tremendous wisdom. He looked weak. But here's the trick. Paul made himself nothing. So Jesus could be everything. He said, now let me tell you this. Paul was something. Believe you me, he was educated under a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And you can go research this. I mean, he was a main cat. Gamaliel was a main cat. He was a guy that could, that could mentor and teach properly. He was a, so Paul was mentored by this guy, taught by this guy. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He understood the law of Moses like nobody else. He could debate the law well. He was a Roman citizen, and so he could deal with Roman ideologies. He understood Greek culture. We saw that in Athens, right, in Acts chapter 17. And so he could debate with philosophers. He could be wise. He was extremely wise. He was powerful in speech. He could be. He understood the culture and the mindset of the people in Corinth. And he knew that the way to make an impact was not to try and let everybody focus on him, to try and be wise, to come up with philosophies and things like that. No, he came to Corinth to make an impact by making himself nothing and making Jesus everything, by relying on the power of the cross and not the power of his own abilities. And what Paul was saying here in this text is, my business is not to be a politician, a farmer, a scholar, a social butterfly, a philosopher, an academic, a scientist. No, I'm just the preacher of Christ. It's like Paul is saying, you know what, I'm a dead preacher. I'm a dead preacher. I don't care what people think about me. I don't care about saying nice things. I don't care about being clever, sounding clever. I don't care about pleasing society. I've just, I'm a dead preacher with a living message. And the living message, we'll talk about that in a moment. It's like he's, he's quoting Nikolaus Zinzendorf. You know what he, what he said? He said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. That's how Paul felt. I'm just going to preach the gospel. I don't care what people think about me. me. Um, he cared what people thought of the man on the cross. Now let me ask this question. Why are so many of us concerned about what people think of us? Why are we so sensitive? Why are we so insecure? Ladies and gentlemen, being overwhelmed with what people think of you is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Because spiritually mature people are dead and they don't live for themselves anymore. The same Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus was the only thing that Paul wanted people to see in him. And if you are a Christian, 
and you are consistently worried about what other people think of you, you've got some growing to do. You need to give over your life to Christ. Now, taking into consideration Corinthian society, Paul knew that there was only one way to penetrate it. He, he had to resolve, he had to make the decision that the only thing he will preach, talk about, and focus on is this. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, let me... Let's think about that for a moment. I mean, if you go, you walk into an, an ungodly group of people's presence and you say, okay, guys, I'm just going to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do you think they're going to think? It doesn't sound like at the, at, you know, it doesn't sound like a powerful message, but it worked. Corinthian society is godless. Paul spends 18 months there and many people have converted. And the only thing that Paul preached was Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? Well, Jesus Christ and Him crucified is this. It's who Jesus was and what He came to do. It's about the person of Jesus and the event. Jesus the person and Jesus on the cross. One person said it's what Jesus taught, what He did and what He suffered. So we know Paul's message and we know Corinthian society. But how do they meet up? That's the big question in this podcast. How do they meet up? It's a base society and it's a basic message. What does a man in rags hanging on a cross that is dead have anything of value to a bunch of pagans, prostitutes, drunkards, philosophers and immoral sailors? Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten is what Nikola Zinzendorf said. How could that be a powerful way to live? Christ and Him crucified. Why is that such a powerful message that could change the hearts of an immoral group of people who live in Corinth? Because if we understand this well, we will understand why Jesus Christ and crucified is so relevant to our lives today as well. And why this message is still the answer for a godless society. Well, let me try it. Let me try these two things and ask the question, how is this relevant? There are two things all people have in common. Two things. Every human being, you're listening to this, you've got this in common with me. We live and we die. Life and death, we all have in common. The people in Corinth, the people in Vegas, the people in America, the people in South Africa, we all have the same thing in common. We live, we die. We have life and we have death. And one thing is very clear about the human race, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know how to live and we don't know how to die. But we have to live and we are going to die. So we, it's a good idea to deal with this. And there's only one message that has an answer for the living and the dying. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, why is it that we don't know how to live? What do I mean by that? Well, you just have to look around you. People are suffering. People are in pain. People's families are a mess. People walk around joyless. People walk around, they are dead. Just hasn't been declared yet. People are unhappy. They don't know how to live. People are in debt. People don't know how to do relationships. You know, it's one of the saddest things is that you get so many people in this world who refuse to accept Christ, but their lives are a mess. They do life their own way. And it's, 
and it's a mess, but they won't try anything else. The reason why our lives is a mess is because of sin. Everything boils back to sin. Sin is the reason for suffering. Sin is the reason why we uh, struggle with, 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 with happiness, with depression. Sin. It's caused by sin. Everything started with sin. But we don't want to accept that as the solution. Jesus Christ. He comes and He shows us how to deal with sin. But we'll talk about that. Now let, let's unpack this for a moment. Paul preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now let's look at the first section. Jesus Christ. Now I just looked at a few things. What does Jesus Christ mean to us? What did Jesus Christ, the idea of the person, this person who lived. And I, I was listening to Dinesh D'Souza uh, yesterday or the day before. And he's giving this excellent talk about the rationality of the cross and he makes the point and i hope i'm going to remember everything he says but he makes the point that um, all scholars basically all rational rational and reasonable scholars agree that jesus christ really lived he really lived a life on earth there was such a man as jesus christ and all scholars agree that there were people many hundreds of people who claimed that he had risen from the dead Okay, and then he makes the and then he makes the comment. So everybody agrees he lived, and everybody agrees that there has been many reports of him having um, risen from the dead. But what everybody debates is whether he did rise from the dead. And so you gotta you gotta find a way to explain away like these hundreds of people that saw him raised from the dead, and these people who gave up their lives because they saw him raised from the dead. Why would they do that if he didn't really rise from the dead? Why would they all create the same story? If they knew that it was fake, why would they all create the same story and die for it? Who would die for a lie? For crying in a bucket. And so he proves through that argumentation that the cross is real. So in any case, so Jesus was a real figure on earth. And so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about those 33 years on the earth. What is so powerful about that? How does that change things? Well, first of all, if we, if we look at Corinthian society, it was a big thing. Because for thousands of years, the human race in different parts of the world have been trying to figure out what the invisible God looks like. That's why they made images of gold and silver to worship. That's why, for example, you've got Pan, the half goat, half man being that they made, created to worship. Why did they always make an image of the gods they wanted to worship? Because they wanted to have an idea of what he looks like. That's why the Egyptians worshipped uh, the sun, because they could see the sun. That's why the stars, the worshipping of the stars took place, because they could see these things. And people worshipped the moon, because they wanted something they could see. And it's like, it's almost like if I put it into my own words, it's like God says, okay, it's the right time now. You all want to see what I look like? Okay, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you exactly what I look like. In actual fact, I'm going to come down. And I'm going to put on human clothes and human flesh. And I'm going to come live among you. And I'm going to come show you exactly who I am. And I'm going to come down to your level. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you. And I'm going to show you who I am. And that's what makes Jesus Christ so powerful. Because he's God in human flesh. If you want a role model or something to look up to, Jesus Christ is it. The creator of the universe comes to show us who he is. And you know what he focuses on? He focuses on children. 
He focuses on the lost, the brokenhearted. He comes to show love. He comes to sacrifice his life. That's why in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 we see, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Go look at Jesus. So Jesus shows us who God is, but Jesus shows us how to suffer. Jesus shows us how to suffer. You look at Jesus. Jesus came to give us an example of how to handle suffering because he knew many people would suffer because we've got a virus in this world called sin. And so 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. <laughs> it is an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. If you suffer in your life, may it be not because you did something evil, but may it be because you did what was good and right. But Jesus not only shows us who God is and shows us how to suffer, he, Jesus shows us which attitude gets us to the top. And we want to get to the top. We want to excel. And it's great to excel in this world. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And we're going to read, when you go read the verses that continue after that, it becomes so clear what, what, the, what Jesus challenges us to do. He was the greatest in the universe. He's the God of heaven and earth. He comes down to the earth and he gets crucified by humans. He's the author of life, but yet he becomes obedient to death. He humbled himself, the text says. He doesn't have to humble himself, but he did. And he died on a cross. And the text says, therefore, God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so the beauty of this is just it. You want to reach the top. You go from the bottom. You humble yourself. You want to be successful in life. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. And Jesus shows us how to do that. Right? Fourthly, Jesus shows us how to face sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in, who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so we have in Jesus a person who struggled with sin like we do. You committed sin this week, I committed sin this week, and we think like, well, God doesn't know what it feels like to deal with sin. Yes, He does. He does. Jesus Christ was tempted with lust. He was tempted with food. He was tempted with power. He was tempted with money. He was tempted with everything that we are tempted with, yet he didn't sin. And through that, he shows us that it's possible, but that's not really the reason why he did it. He didn't come to the earth to show us, hey guys, if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> that's not why he did it. The reason why he did it is so that he could sympathize with us and say, dude, you know what? I've been in the flesh. I know it's hard, man. And I get you. Here's my grace. I get you. Because many of us, we walk around with serious guilt feelings. And Jesus is like, bro, I get you, man. It's okay. Jesus is grace. And lastly, Jesus shows us how to love. The saddest thing in the world is this, that we love people we don't know how to show it. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus shows us how to love people. We do that with everything. We don't hold back. We give everything. We put ourselves on a cross for the people that we love in our lives. So is the message of Jesus Christ powerful? Absolutely. It touches everybody. It touches the people in Vegas. It touches the prostitutes on the streets of Portland. It, trust, it, it touches everybody. Jesus Christ is relevant today. He has always been relevant. His life is the supreme example of how to live this life. 
But what about him crucified? How's that relevant? His crucifixion, that is the event in history. Not only did Paul preach Christ Jesus as God in flesh, he lived the perfect life that we get to imitate. No, he preached the last event and the reason why he came to earth. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the reasons is this. The cross carries our burden of guilt. The cross pays for our sin. It heals our consciences. You might say, well, what does that have to do with a pagan out there in the street? It doesn't matter who you are on this earth. The moral precepts of God have been written on our hearts by default. If you are a human being, you know what's right and wrong. Nobody has to tell you that murder is wrong. You know it's wrong. God has written His laws on our hearts. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. You know when you've done wrong. The cross takes away that burden. The cross says, hey man, you know you've done wrong. It's okay, I've paid for it. I've paid for it. It takes away our mess. That we can confidently enter eternal life. The cross removes our fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14-15 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through His death He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Everybody's scared of dying because they don't know what's waiting there for Him. But the cross, Jesus on the cross, what happens? He gets taken off the cross and he rises to life. It's symbolism. It's perfect realism for us. That even though we die, we will live. Jesus said if you believe in him, even though you die, you will live. That's the power of the cross. Death is not our end. It's just an upgrade to the next level. And what's so interesting for me is this. We ignore him while we live and we adore him when we die. In other words... When we live, we don't want to live like Jesus. But when we die, oh, then we want the funeral in the church. We never go to church. We never read the Bible. Oh, but when I die, a preacher must be there and he must read from the Bible. People live their lives like they want to. When they're about to die, they ask the preacher to come and pray by their beds. And they want the whole world to pray for them through their cancer. So we ignore him when we live and we adore him when we die. It's interesting that we like Jesus, but we don't follow him. And we only like Him in death. We're unhappy, we're filled with stress and suffering and emotional turmoil, yet we don't go to Jesus to try His way of life. Shame on you if you're a servant of Jesus or you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, but you mope around as if His Spirit doesn't live in your life. You're just a, you're just a pagan walking around with a Christian sticker on your forehead. Not only does the cross carry our burden of guilt and the cross removes our fear of death, the cross gives us evidence that we are not alone in the universe. Do you know that there are millions of people on this earth trying to figure out whether they are aliens? They want to figure out, are we alone in this universe? <laughs> I I'm, I'm, don't have time to go into it now. But the greatest evidence that God exists is history. History tells us that the cross happened. Otherwise, the events in history wouldn't have happened like it did. And secondly, experience. There are too many people whose lives has changed because Jesus had risen from the dead and I'm one of those. And maybe you are one of those. You can't take away history. You can't change history and you cannot take away the experience of thousands of people on this earth whose lives have been changed by the cross. What happened there is real. God steps 
into human history to make a statement. I am here and this is how I feel about you. I am here and this is how I feel about you. That's the statement from God. Now we can search for aliens our whole lives and ignore the message of the cross where the God of the universe says, I am here. Now, here is the conclusion for all those specifically who call themselves Christians. You don't come to the crucifixion without your cross. Golgotha is a hill for the crucified. It's not for the living. Galatians 6 verse 14 says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Jesus lived and was crucified. And he lived the way he did because he knew he was going to get crucified. That's why he was all in. Now we've got a different experience. We get crucified and then we live. Now what does that mean? What I mean is this. When you become a Christian, you sign up, you give over your life to him. That's why you get baptized because you get buried. You crucify your life. You repent of your way of life. You get baptized because you are now getting buried. And you come out of the water as a new person. There are too many people who walk around calling themselves Christians. But they haven't been crucified. They didn't really give up their own lives. Now, and that's why they struggle. That's why they struggle to live a Christian life. Because they haven't died on the cross. You cannot live like Jesus if you haven't been crucified like Jesus. You will never know Jesus if you haven't been reconciled with him. You can know scripture. You can know church. You can know people who know Jesus. You can know the world that God had made. You can know science and still not know Jesus. And so I've got a question for you. Are you dead yet? Have you really given over your life to Christ? Because if your life is still going pear-shaped, I think you've got some dying to do. Because God's greatest work is done in dead people. Before a seed can sprout and become a powerful tree that produces fruit, it has to die first. And the reason why many of us are not bearing fruit like we should is because we haven't died yet. May God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Cheers.